Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation that we love to have about people who are making a difference in the world, particularly around food and passion and issues related to hunger, food insecurity, and poverty. On this very special episode of Add Passion and Stir, we're going to talk about hungry children in our midst. We looked back into our 2023 episodes and found profoundly disturbing stories of child hunger and deeply inspirational stories of people fighting to end what we know is a solvable problem. We will hear from author David Ambrose. My normal was being born into homelessness with my mother and two siblings in New York City. There was, there was no before. It was just a consistent day-to-day battle of survival and punctuated with violence, but constantly my companion was hunger. Congressman Jim McGovern. My two sisters are school teachers in Worcester. The kids come to school hungry and they can't focus on their lesson. And you know, my sisters make sure they get their breakfast and their lunch and then they can start to focus. And on Fridays, they're looking for food to bring home. Hunger is everywhere. Rhonda Chafin, the executive director of the Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee. We have our own set of challenges, very uh, uh, rural area Um, very difficult to reach people in uh, some of those areas. The scale of what we um, serve is about 3,000 square miles of um, uh, some of the most mountainous rural area in Northeast Tennessee. Jason DePearl is a senior writer for the New York Times who reports on the plight of the poor. There's still 8 million kids below the poverty line, and that's a low poverty line. And It's a meager, unstable existence filled with all kinds of not only physical hardship, but emotional stress that results from that. Dr. Renee Ryberg is a senior research scientist at Child Trends. Poverty can lead to instability in terms of housing, moving a lot, which leads to changing schools a lot, instability in schedules based on parents' work schedules, for example, in terms of food. Dr. Jack Shonkoff is a professor of child health and development at Harvard. People who are very poor and experience trauma and hardships are more likely have a higher rate of problems in school and problems with chronic health problems as adults and die and don't live as long. This is not genetic. Dr. Kimberly Montez is a board-certified pediatrician and an associate professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. The baby may and may not be gaining weight because the mother doesn't have or the family doesn't have access to enough nutritious food. And so the baby is, is failing to, to gain weight. Um, they're, they're underweight. They are not eating enough. They may, um, they may not be able to hold their temperature. We may have to send them to the hospital um, in order to, to get the services that they need. Mark Del Monte is the CEO and executive vice president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. What, what we have to recognize and sort of accept as a country is that 50% of children at least are growing up in families that are poor or very near poor. And food insecurity is an integral part of that. And what will we do to build a a system around those families to support all of their needs, including their basic need for food? Before we begin, I want to tell you about an American tragedy. And like all tragedies, it starts with a lofty goal and then a downfall. In 2021, As part of the American Rescue Plan, the expanded child tax credit liberated almost 3 million children from the tyranny of poverty. But when Congress failed to extend the child tax credit, it ruthlessly pushed those same kids back below the poverty line in 2022. 
we're going to talk about the devastating consequences for those children who are trapped once again in a prison of our own making. But stick around. At the end of the podcast, we're going to share some hopeful news for the millions of children who are needlessly going hungry in America today. David Ambrose knows all too well the toll that hunger and food insecurity has on blameless children because he grew up as one of those children from the day he was born. He chronicled that childhood in his book, A Place Called Home. My mother, from my earliest memory, as I write in that that first chapter, my mom asked us, homeless in a shelter, almost having died of exposure, having not eaten in a very long time, my mom asked us, is this what you want? And I remember just from so far inside of my soul being like, no, I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to be sitting here in my own urine. I don't want to be starving. I don't want my brother and sister to basically be dying from hunger and exposure. And I want to help my mom. What Ambrose learned so painfully growing up in adverse circumstances and then traversing the treacherous landscape of the foster care system is that much of the pain and suffering children in poverty endure is a choice, not their choice, not their parents' choice, but a policy choice made by politicians in Washington, D.C. I often get asked, you know, what are the, how did you do it? And I kind of reject that question because the supposition or the idea that people have is if we can map out the success of this individual, we'll be able to duplicate it, if not at scale, at least for more people. And the reality is, is I went through hell Reality is I had so much violence done to me as a child that nobody should look at that as a pathway to produce a human uh, like myself. It is not acceptable what my siblings and I experienced for decades at the hands of adults and the indifference of the public. Not a pathway. There was no magical moment that came into my life. It was a decision every day not to be snuffed out by whatever force through neglect or action, was trying to do that, be it a cruel, cruel foster parent, be it the state trying to cure me for being gay with very aggressive and violent therapy, be it graduating and emancipating again into homelessness. I I don't think my pathway is uh, something we should duplicate, nor that of my brother and sister, both of whom struggled. And what I ask people to do is not to model the system or systems on my experience, but instead to close their eyes and to imagine their child or their mother or their loved one in foster care. What does that system look like? What does it look like? And if that's not what we have, that is the path that we need to create for our kids and our families that are struggling. You will not have healthy children if you don't have healthy families. Families cannot be good and healthy and thriving if they're starving are homeless. So that's the system. That's the answer that I ask people to create is re-believe in our collective ability to lift people up. And that is called government. That is called nonprofits. We can do this together. Congressman Jim McGovern is the ranking member of the Rules Committee in the House of Representatives. He detailed how false narratives drive bad decisions by legislators and policymakers and how that results in the cruel treatment of children like a young David Ambrose. Yeah, so the conversations that are happening here in Congress are are not particularly uplifting, let me put it to you that way. And here's the deal. The majority of able-bodied adults without dependents who are on SNAP who can't work, work. They work. So let's take that 
falsehood off the table that somehow people are just not working. They're working. The remaining people who are not working, who fall in that category, it's a complicated population. It's people with undiagnosed mental illnesses, homeless people, uh, veterans, people just graduating out of foster care. I mean, people with very complicated situations, people who live in rural areas who don't have access to transportation to get them to a place where there might be a job or a work training program. And the idea that they're focused on trying to take a food benefit away from these very vulnerable people is just plain cruel. Rhonda Chafin sees these families every day in her work at Second Harvest. The scope and scale of our food bank is very different from a food bank in a larger city, perhaps in D.C. or New York City, simply because we have our own set of challenges, very uh, uh, rural area, very difficult to reach people in uh, some of those areas, no public transportation, individuals are unable to get to sites to get food. So it's not sometimes available to them unless we can reach them with the programs that we operate, whether it be home delivery to seniors that have very limited mobility and no access to food or children that have no transportation. They don't have anyone to get food for them and they are stuck in their home or mobile home or in their location and they just don't have access to food. When I take a look at the people that we're serving, we see grandparents raising grandchildren. We see we see so many working poor families. We serve a lot of children that mom and dad are off at work and they are home. They are stuck at home with a very limited amount of food. You know, so many times mom and dad are working. They are working. They are trying to make ends meet. Mom and dad might have to travel an hour to work. And that child is left at home with very limited resources and, and you know, not much food to eat. Those are the faces that we see that we're serving. But sometimes we do see children that, you know, Mom and dad are not there for one reason or another because they've made bad choices. So, it, you know, it, it, is, it is a variety of stories and unfortunate situations that put the child in the center of everything, and that, meaning that they just don't have the resources they need, and we, and we need to help them so that they have what they need. Providing poverty-stricken children with the resources they need sounds like a common-sense policy decision. But the New York Times' Jason DePearl explained to us how and why an important policy solution, the Child Tax Credit, created to help children, has a huge design flaw, a flaw that crushes the ability of the poorest among us to access benefits that are freely given to middle- and upper-class families. It started as a small tax break for middle-income families in the late 1990s. By 2017, it became much a much larger tax credit, and it was extended up the income distribution, not down the income distribution, to families with uh, incomes up to $400,000 a year. So not only for fam- middle-class families, but for, for very affluent families. And it left out about a third of the children, the poorest third of the children from getting it. So you know, it it was a little like having a policy bullseye around it, you know, as it got bigger and more valuable and left out more poor people, 
um, the unfairness of it became more evident. In March of 2021, Congress passed the American Rescue Plan Act. In it were expansion of tax credits that address the needs of impoverished families. When Congress passed it, advocates hoped that it would become so compelling that they were only able to pass it for a one, for one year to begin with. And the thought was it would become so compelling, so um, uh, crucial that Congress couldn't let it expire. Dr. Renee Ryberg is senior research scientist at Child Trends, an independent research institute that analyzes data to help children thrive and survive. Dr. Ryberg explained how the expansion of the earned income tax credit worked before it expired almost two years ago. The earned income tax credit is a tax credit for low to middle income families where uh, when you file taxes, you get a lump sum back based on your income, household size, number of kids, things like that. And it can be pretty substantial. It can be up to, I think, about $6,000. Um, but there are major limitations with that, that the child tax credit, the expansion to the child tax credit actually addressed. Um, so one is this idea of refundability. With the earned income tax credit, you have to make a certain amount of money in order to qualify for it as opposed to the, the child tax credit, which is more inclusive. It helps the people with the, the least income. As well-intentioned as these programs are and as effective as they can be in helping impoverished children, there's a disturbing data point that leaps out when you look at the numbers. Uh, so Black and Latino kids are nearly three times as likely to live in poverty as white kids. Asian kids are about one just over one and a half times as likely to live in poverty as white kids. Those those rates haven't budged since 1993. So we saw this huge historic decline in child poverty over the past generation. But the inequities in who experiences that poverty, uh, when you look by race, ethnicity, when you look by immigration status, and when you look by family structure, the number of parents that a kid lives with, the declines in child poverty were remarkably consistent. So there's there's two ways to think about that. Um, one is that, great, poverty is going down for everybody. The other is that, great, poverty is going down for everybody, but our disparities aren't changing. We're not helping the kids who need it the most anymore now than we were a generation ago. Here again is Dr. Jack Shankoff the professor of child health and development at Harvard and the leader of their Center for the Developing Child. The hardships and the threats and the stresses of poverty and racism and other inequities are not inevitable. Um, and that this is get tricky because um, there's a slippery slope from talking about biology to having people interpret that as meaning biology is destiny. And if early experiences affect your brain circuits, then whatever happens is, um, you know, you're, you're doomed if you've had really rough experiences and significant trauma. What's really been important about helping people understand this is that um, there's huge variability in sensitivity to these kinds of traumas and that the early experiences shift the odds. They don't determine exactly what's going to happen. All these things do is they increase the risk of, of, of poor outcomes, or they increase the likelihood of positive outcomes. And it's never too late to kind of try to get things back on track if they're off track. But it's easier and better and you get a better outcome if you get it right early. 
rather than try to fix things later. And once again, Dr. Kimberly Montez, who has been in partnership with our No Kid Hungry campaign through the American Academy of Pediatrics and is an associate professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. We have a, a, a great ability to, to impact a child's tra um, trajectory, and that starts on, you know, very early in their life. And, and again, we know that food insecurity as, uh, it impacts the lifespan, um, even, be, even being associated with lower birth weights, higher rates preterm, um, increased risk of anemia, lots of things all the way into adulthood. So if we can start really early by screening and intervening, um, it, it can make a difference. And once again, Mark Del Monte, the CEO and Executive Vice President of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Children are complex things, and the care of a child is a complex thing, and so that means there are a lot of things to talk about in a very short period of time. If, if a child is uh, part of a family in which there is chronic and persistent food insecurity, and it manifests in all the ways that Dr. Montez just described, this becomes a primary issue. So I think if, if you don't ask, you don't know. And if you don't uh, know, then you can't understand why um, things are not getting better. And, and so making sure that our members have the tools and an and ability to screen appropriately in ways that, that help them identify children at risk or children or who are currently uh, hungry and then, as importantly, to create the systems so that they have something they can do about it. Uh, it's terrible to identify a problem and not be able to solve it. And so that piece of it, the policy piece of it, uh, in addition to the what goes on uh, in, the, in the exam room, the piece of it that happens outside of that is equally important. So we have to have some place to refer. So there has to be a very strong WIC program or a very strong SNAP program. Uh, and so that there is a solution to this in addition to the screening identification as well. As we have said before, the issue of child hunger and child poverty are solvable problems. And as I mentioned, there's a reason for renewed optimism. Committees in both the House and Senate have approved the advancement of legislation that would expand the child tax credit once again. In 2022, when pandemic relief programs expired, childhood poverty in the United States more than doubled. With the passage of the bipartisan tax package, we can change the trajectory of hunger and poverty in America. What choice will you make in the fight to end childhood hunger in America? If you want to learn how you can be part of the movement to help desperate children get the resources they need to thrive and prosper, go to nokidhungry.org. That's nokidhungry.org and click on the tab, Ways You Can Help. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share it with a friend or rate the show so that others can find it. At Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Debbie Shore and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.